This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore artworks, stories, and more at artuk.org. If you would like to help support the work of our charity, you can also think about signing up to become an Art UK citizen. A very small donation can help to make a huge difference to our work. Details are on the Art UK website. Another series of Britain's Lost Masterpieces has just finished airing on BBC4. Did you catch it? I'll warn you now that if you haven't seen it yet and you plan on watching, you may want to stop listening to this episode because spoilers lay ahead. I recently sat down again with Bender Grosvenor, one half of the show's dynamic hosting duo, which includes social historian Emma Dabiri, to discuss the latest series and get Bender's thoughts on the amazing discoveries and transformations that take place. Please listen and enjoy. Thank you for joining me to discuss this new series. Thank you for having me. Uh, No worries. So I thought the first question I always wonder about is how do you decide, um, and I think we discussed this last time, but how did you decide this time on which artworks you were going to investigate? Oh, well, uh, that in many ways is the most exciting um, part, but it's also the most time consuming. So um, I fire up uh, the fantastic uh, and indispensable Art UK website, (laughs) and um, I just just search, scroll uh, on and on and on. Uh, looking for things, particularly looking for things that are unknown artist or circle of, uh, follower of, um, dis- things that are described as, as with an uncertain attribution. And then I uh, make a little short list or actually rather a long short list. I ask the institution for some high-res photos. And if things look promising, I get on a plane or a, a train and I go and look at them with my my special kit. Oh yes, which includes that that flashlight, doesn't it? My that little you torch, take yes. into the stores. Yeah. Yes, yes. But so when you see something online and it's um, an unknown artist, or it might say circle, well, maybe not even circle of, it might say French school or something like that. What makes you think? Oh, I think it might be a, this artist. Is it just it jumps out to you as being reminiscent of something? Yes. So the 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 basic pattern of connoisseurship is that you um, recognize. Uh, a composition or a artistic technique and uh, it's quite difficult to describe really because it's just a sort of a l- a little flicker of something a gut instinct um, a sense of recognition i mean in the same way that um, anyone might recognize their you know, a friend in the street is you just you can't really describe how you recognize your friend you just know that it's your friend yeah and so what's a typical starting point you know, you, you arrive there, you've got your torch in hand. Um, what is the starting point for when you want to find out more about sussing out who is, in, who is a sitter or who made the painting? Well, we go into the, the storeroom or the conservation studio and we have a good look at the portrait of the painting with uh, the torches and magnifying glasses, all that kind of thing. Um, at that stage, we're kind of less interested in the subject of the picture and more interested in the attribution. And in particular, the first thing you have to get to grips with uh, is the painting's condition. Um, because nine times out of ten, a painting has had its attribution downgraded from, say, 
you know, Leonardo to School of Leonardo. Uh, not that I've ever have or ever will find a Leonardo, but uh, <laughs> the attribution has been downgraded because of uh, you know what what I call in the in the series uh, condition issues, and so that means that you know uh, a painting may have been interfered with by a later restorer or it's got some old and yellow varnish on it which means you can't quite see the the quality or the technique so um, once i've got to grips with that with um, my my colleague sometimes uh, the restorer simon gillespie um then it's then you can start to work out well if this picture perhaps entered the museum's collection as a work by for example in this series we've been doing botticelli if the picture entered the collection as a botticelli 60 70 years ago then has something changed to it? Has 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 it been interfered with, uh, badly restored, or just got dirty? Which means that in the intervening decades, it's sort of had a, a layer of grime over it, a filter, if you like, that means we can't now judge whether it is by Botticelli or not. And is that the reason why the attribution has been downgraded? And that's that's so that's where we we start to pull the thread. And if we think that by cleaning a picture, we can get back to the original layers and thus the original attribution, then we know we've got uh, a possible candidate. I feel like this season, the cleaning, because I've cut, you've explained this really well, actually, because I've wondered why it always begins with the cleaning. So that is really helpful to, to know. But this season with the Bruegel, I just, it was incredible, the difference after, after it was, went to the restorer. Yeah, so this was the painting we had uh, from a Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. Yes. Um, and when we first saw it, um, it was in two, it's oil on panel. When we first saw it, it was two separate planks that had fallen apart. Uh, and you really, there were hardly any areas of the picture that you could see for certain and say, well, that's the original paint surface there. But there, there were glimmers of it. Uh, but I would say probably... 60, 70% of the painting had been overpainted. Um, and uh, it was the remainder where you could see little tiny details, for example, of the of the cow's backsides. And that was one of the things I got excited about with that painting because um, <laughs> Jan Bruegel, the elder, painted his uh, cow's backsides in a particularly distinctive manner. And so um, w- one of the things that always alerts me to the possibility that we've got a lost masterpiece is... If you've got a painting which has manifestly very, very good bits as well as really, really terrible bits, then if there's a mystery there, it's not often that an artist would have painted a picture in one go and have done one bit extremely well and then the rest has just given up. So usually that's because someone else has come along and and interfered with it. And with this picture in Birmingham... Um, the person who interfered with it was uh, the restorer from hell, uh, <laughs> someone who decided that they could, uh, it quotes, improve the picture by literally painting in a whole new town um, and obliterating half the original landscape. So, um, Well, it was very weird because the middle section of it, from what I could see watching this, the show, it, it was blacked out almost. I mean, you couldn't see anything. Yes, yeah, so that so this was this was the the mother of all conservation challenges because mm. uh, the picture being split in half, um, it had been overpainted probably a uh, hundred two hundred years ago, and then on top of that overpaint, it had it had got both very dirty. I mean, there was literally sort of uh, muck and grime caked onto it, but but very thick layers of old varnish had kind of gone off like curdled milk. So. 
we had to we had to deal with the structure. We had to take the varnish off. We had to take the dirt off, and then we had to, uh, when we encountered the other bit, we had to scratch our heads, um, and first of all, be absolutely sure that it wasn't right, and then work out how to take it off safely, without taking away all the rubbish under. Um, sorry, the, <laughs> take the rubbish off on top, but not take off the the original underneath. Um, and poor Simon um, and his colleagues <laughs> in the studio. I I don't. I think you know, large amounts of champagne will have to be delivered at Christmas uh, for me to get over that one. Yeah, well, I think that if there's an award for such a thing, I mean, honestly, that I've never seen such a dramatic difference. Yes, and that you know, that's the, that's the the most exciting part of the show. It's it's really not about as much as I might like to think it is. It's not about me turning up and go, ah, I've spotted <laughs> a Bruegel. It's actually about that process of transformation. Uh, and when we came up with the idea of the series. That was always the the foundation element of it, was uh, to show people how a painting can suffer over time, and how it can be uh, brought back from that the brink of disaster. And that's that's the thing that people really love to see. I thought it was really interesting that once you did remove all of those layers and start to see the background. Um, that you you said, oh, I recognize this this style of trees and it's juiced a mumper, and I thought, well, how do you how do you do that? And I'm sure it comes with just years of practice. But um, had, had you been looking at works that Bruegel had done with other artists, or did it just come to you in that moment? Um, actually, that when we recorded that sequence, that was the first time I had seen um, the the landscape the trees uh, underneath, and I hadn't been able to because all the trees have been overpainted by Mister. Or, or Mrs. Bad Restorer. Um, <laughs> and I, although I did know that Bruegel had collaborated with a large number of other artists, I'd, uh, I th- when I said used to Momper um, with a terrible Dutch accent in the program, that was the first time I, the, the name used to Momper had occurred to me. Um, I'm not trying to sound smart, but it was, um, you know, there is a, de- there is a, there is a high degree of, of actuality um, as we mm. record the film, and, and very often we start a program where we we have no idea where it's going to lead lead us, and that that makes it exciting, but also a challenge to film. Well, it's it's interesting because it, um, I guess, it seems watching this this the show that um, that spark of an idea led you down a path of detective work that proved to be correct. That you, when you did go to look and see paintings that they had done together, it was a, it was similar. Yes, I mean, Eusta Mompa was, um, he has that very staccato way of doing his trees. As, so that does make kind of, you know, mm. um, recognizing his style um, slightly easy. But but the, the the reason I think the program resonates with, with the people who watch it is because it's never about me and the experts going, oh, well, let's use to Mompa, uh, just take my word for it. Um, you know, mm. we 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 go in in detail and we find comparable examples and we show the images and so you can decide as much as I can whether it's by use to Mumper or not. Right. So in the first episode, um, we look at the Petoni work and you talk about um, connoisseurship and and as being part of your process of uh, determining the the facts of that painting. So could you explain a bit about what connoisseurship is? What that means? A connoisseurship uh, sounds um, rather highfalutin, um, and it's it's a term in art history which is freighted with baggage and uh, misconceptions. But I always take it back to its Latin roots. Um, it comes from a cognoscere, 
which, which is to recognize. So it's literally, as I was saying, um, you recognize the style of an artist just as you would recognize your friend in the street. Uh, and that that's all it is, basically. Um, and we mm. all practice connoisseurship in a visual way every day of our lives. We just don't necessarily associate it with art history. And the portrait in that episode was of a grand tour, which is another thing that I thought might be good to explain about what about what that is even though you do explain it a bit in the episode um it, i just wondered if you could talk about it a bit more oh the grand tour was uh in the 18th century when there was a period of, of relative peace on the continent um and increasing prosperity amongst uh, at least the british upper classes in in britain um they all decided to go and uh, have a an extended gap year, so to speak, in Italy and um, learn about art and culture. It was also an opportunity to be debauched, but um, <laughs> they, they often uh, used art as a sort of veneer, an excuse to go out there um, and go around all the sites. Yes. And so uh, is it the same episode as that one that you do the Gainsborough? Because I've watched them uh, very close together and now they're all running together is that the same episode <laughs> as the Gainsborough? Uh, the Gainsborough's uh, the Gainsborough's another picture from Birmingham um which which didn't work out alas not a Gainsborough yes oh the, yes but it, in the episode it, it just stuck out to me and it was only a brief um moment that you went to see another painting um and it was of a a family portrait that they requested that it was overpainted several times with these very elaborate and seemingly very annoying changes. Um, is that common for something for for patrons to do that sort of thing? It does happen. It's not hugely common, um, but portraits like this were not. We often assume portraits like this were designed to record people deliberately for posterity, uh, for the benefit of. Um, children, great-grandchildren, uh, and stately home visitors of the future. But in fact, they were often, they, I mean, they were usually sort of statements of wealth, and you would put it up on your wall to show how uh, rich you were. And because fashion changes uh, changed as quickly then as it does today, um, you would look a little, sometimes risk looking a little bit old-fashioned if you had your friends around and, and there was your painting on the wall in, in last season's clothes. So often they were tarted up uh, or added to. Um, it also happened, it even happened back in the um, 16th century for things like royal portraits. Um, it was it was not unusual for, say, a portrait of Henry VIII to be overpainted as the king got older. Um, so portraits were, portraits of monarchs were often hung on the wall to display your loyalty to the regime. And uh, a little bit like um, if the Times illustrated a, a story, um, a political story today with, with a portrait of Boris Johnson when he was at university, you, it just would instinctively look all wrong. You have to have, you have, to have an up-to-date portrait, uh, a photo of the prime minister. So um, the same happened in the Tudor age for portraits. So often, yes, often you do find artists or different artists were brought back to uh, update portraits. So I guess it was just a more cost-effective way than having an entirely new portrait done. Yes, you could say that. Um, but it was one of the maddening things that sort of drove Gainsborough mad, uh, why he called portrait painting the cursed face business, because, yes. um, you know, he had to deal with probably three or four people a day being extremely vain and picky about how uh, he painted them. Um, 
And that's more than always the sort of the fascinating things about portraiture is it's a it is a clash between the ego of the sitter and and the the artistic desire of the artist. So sometimes it goes horribly wrong, but other times it works triumphantly. So what do you think of um because this was a really interesting uh series in terms of the the outcomes and the dramatic differences and the storytelling. I thought it was really interesting. I um I just wonder what your what are some standout moments that you had in the course of all of this. Um well because how how long does this take you? Over what period of time would all of this it, take? It's probably it's probably about nine months, start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, I, I must say, I always enjoy the trips to places like Italy. Um, this year we had to go in February, so it was it was extremely cold. And one of the things when you're in TV is uh, you have to have, sort of have continuity of wardrobe, or at least I do, because it just makes life easier. All so, right. um, although it looks like I'm standing in uh, Italian sunshine with my little summer jacket on. Um, <laughs> actually, it's freezing cold um, in the middle of February. Um, so I enjoy all those bits. But also, you know, I really um, enjoy the the bits that Emma does. They're, they're wonderful spaces within each program to sort of allow the story to grow and breathe. Uh, and she's so good at uh, framing all these issues of, of wider context and she, and she never does it in a way that's um, remotely dumbing down or patronizing to the viewer even though we're ex- having to um, sometimes explain quite uh, complex um, narratives um, so no, I, I, I love everything about them really Yes. There, there was a word she used that you you might remember, and I can't remember. It was a philia. It was a, mm, it was during the Botticelli episode because you were in love with the beauty of the painting. Yeah. Oh, scopophilia. Yes. Scopophilia. Yes. Can you explain a bit about what that is for listeners? Yes. That's something Emma brought up. Um, and it's a, it's a terrible affliction to, um, that can be suffered by art connoisseurs. Scopophilia sounds, um, ghastly, but it's, the tendency of the male gaze to look at at an object, in this case a, a depiction of a Madonna, of a female subject, and to assume that because you think the subject is beautiful, it must be uh, somehow artistically good. So, mm. and I think, so that's, so Emma brought that up because I was looking at this Madonna and thinking, oh, it's beautiful, it must be by a great <laughs> artist. Yes. And you know that is that is a a thought process which once you begin to break it down is sort of um, these days we would say is problematic um so uh, that scopophilia is a term for that yeah that's interesting it's interesting that you've you've said and and Emma says in the show that it's about the male gaze is it a gendered thing or oh no you're quite right it probably isn't no it it can't be really because it can it must be able to go both ways i yeah. suppose it can go any it's way you like but, but it's it does the, it does bias you, doesn't it? Uh, it does, uh, or it can, and that's um, one of the risks of connoisseurship. It is about uh, almost inexplicable sort of uh, neurological connections between your brain and your eye, and sometimes your gut. Um, it is obviously prone to be uh, infected, if that's the right word, by all manner of assumptions and preconceptions, um, and it is. Unless you're very careful, it is easy to become swayed by things like a sort of a, a scopophilic reaction to to view a picture 
uh, and say, oh, it's beautiful. It must be by a good artist. But in my defense, um, <laughs> if I may say, it, whenever, I, whenever I practice connoisseurship, I actually, I very rarely step back. Uh, sometimes I'll look at a picture when I'm trying to figure out who painted it and the subject matter will almost totally escape me. Somebody might say, oh, that's a picture of Tobias and the angel. But I wouldn't have twigged because for me, connoisseurship, detecting artistic technique is is about close looking, is about staring at the canvas, standing right up to it almost so that you can sniff it. So um, I, I do try, therefore, to, to filter out all those uh, uh, preconceptions. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm always being shouted at in art galleries by room wardens who get alarmed that I'm sort of leaning in too closely to a painting. But um, oh yes, that's that's how I do it. But I I think that our our interests and the things that we like are kind of what drive us towards areas of study. Um, so it's almost hard to divorce um, divorce those things at times. But I, I can see how it can be a dangerous thing. Yes. I mean, um, that's why, you know, con critics as connoisseurship rightly point out that all sorts of things can sway your judgment, whether it's, you know, whether you're involved in the art market and uh, mm -hmm. you're thinking, I can make a quick buck on this, or whether you're uh, an expert who, who may be susceptible to the occasional bribe. Um, so um, often all of these attacks are used to discredit the very practice of connoisseurship. But, but I always maintain that um, there are good connoisseurs and bad connoisseurs and, and rotten connoisseurs and pure connoisseurs. But it doesn't mean we should reject the practice itself. We should just be very uh, critical and suspicious of, of how it works. Yeah. So they, they've just announced, um, just in, as a final question for you, they've just announced the A-level for art history online that, that mm -hmm. people can sign up for. And so it made me want to ask you, in terms of people who may be looking towards this sort of position in the future for like aspiring to do work like what you do what kinds of advice would you give them about what to do um i haven't seen the 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 course so i can't really comment on it but i think obviously it's a great story that it's um the a-level art history has come back from the dead after it was nearly scrapped yeah. um, a few years ago so it's great that everybody's uh, pulled together and, and made that made sure that survives now I must I have to confess that I I never studied art history so um I'm I'm a bit of a fraud in that sense um <laughs> I wish I had but I but I never did um so so it, my advice would be for anybody wanting to be an artist or and certainly study it in that way but also remember that it's not only uh, a discipline that you learn from books and perhaps images online, um, and more importantly, words. It's about going out to museums and uh, almost emptying your head of all preconceptions and just looking at the pictures. And don't look at the labels until you've absorbed everything that the picture has to offer. And don't just go to museums and look at good pictures. Uh, go to other places and look at bad pictures go and look at pictures in good condition go and look at pictures in bad condition and you have to do all that to uh, train your eye up and it i'm afraid it does take a long time so that you can really understand everything that's going on in a painting because the first question you must ask even as an academic art historian about an object 
or a painting is do you know everything that it's trying to tell you? Do you know who made it? Do you know if what you're seeing is actually what the artist intended you to see? If you enjoyed this episode, there are two things you can do to keep that energy going. One, make sure you've seen all three episodes of Britain's Lost Masterpieces. You can catch up on the ones you missed on BBC iPlayer. And two, visit artuk.org and explore our Art Detective Forum. This is where we help find artists' attributions, sitters, and solve other art mysteries for works held in public collections. We recently uncovered a Van Dyke, and you might find your own British masterpiece. As always, thank you for listening. Make sure to leave a review for us and let us know what you think. And please join us again next time.